Chapter 13. Marlowe, Bisham Abbey, the Medmenhem monks. Montmorency thinks he will murder an old tomcat, but eventually decides that he will let it live. Shameful conduct of a fox terrier at the civil service stores. Our departure from Marlowe, an imposing procession. The steam launch, useful recipes for annoying and hindering it. We decline to drink the river. A peaceful dog. Strange disappearance of Harris and a pie. Marlowe is one of the pleasantest river centers I know of. It is a bustling, lively little town. Not very picturesque on the whole, it is true, but there are many quaint nooks and corners to be found in it, nevertheless, standing arches in the scattered bridge of time, over which our fancy travels back to the days when Marlowe Manor owned Saxon Algar for its lord, ere conquering William seized it to give to Queen Matilda, ere it passed to the Earls of Warwick or to worldly wise Lord Paget, a counsellor of four successive sovereigns. There is a lovely country road, a lovely country round about it, too, if, after boating, you are fond of a walk, while the river itself is at its best here. Down to Cookham, past the quarry woods and the meadows, is a lovely reach. Dear old quarry woods, with your narrow climbing paths and little winding glades, how scented to this hour you seem with memories of sunny summer days. How haunted are your shadowy vistas with the ghosts of laughing faces. How from your whispering leaves there softly fall the voices of long ago. From Marlowe up to Sunning is even fairer yet. Grand old Bisham Abbey, whose stone walls have rung to the shouts of the Knights Templars, and which at one time was the home of Anne of Cleves and at another of Queen Elizabeth, is passed on the right bank just half a mile above Marlowe Bridge. Bisham Abbey is rich in melodramatic properties. It contains a tapestry bedchamber and a secret room hid high up in the thick walls. The ghost of the Lady Holy, who beat her little boy to death, still walks there at night, trying to wash its ghostly hands clean in a ghostly basin. Warwick, the kingmaker, rests there, careless now about such trivial things as earthly kings and earthly kingdoms, and Salisbury, who did good service at Portiers. Just before you come to the abbey, and right on the river's bank, is Bisham Church, and perhaps, if any tombs are worth inspecting, they are the tombs and monuments in Bisham Church. It was while floating in his boat under the Bisham Beaches that Shelley, who was then living at Marlowe, you can see his house now in West Street, composed the Revolt of Islam. By Hurley Weir, a little higher up, I have often thought that I could stay a month without having sufficient time to drink in all the beauty of the scene. The village of Hurley, five, mile, five minutes' walk from the lock, is as old a little spot as there is on the river, dating, as it does, to quote the quaint phraseology of those dim days, from the time of King Seepert and King Offa. Just past the weir, going up, is Danesfield, where the invading Danes once encamped, during their march to Gloucestershire, I don't know how to say that, and a little further still, nestling by a sweet corner of the stream, is what is left of Medmenham Abbey. The famous Medmenham monks, or Hellfire Club, as they were commonly called, and of whom the notorious Wilkes was a member, were a fraternity whose motto was, Do as you please, and that invitation still stands over the ruined doorway of the abbey. Many years before this bogus abbey, with its congregation of irreverent jesters, was founded, there stood upon this same spot a monastery of a sterner kind, whose monks were of a somewhat different type to the revelers that were to follow them, five hundred years afterwards. The Cistercian monks, whose abbey stood there in the 13th century, wore no clothes but rough tunics and cowls, and ate no flesh, nor fish, nor eggs. 
They lay upon straw, and they rose at midnight to mass. They spent the day in labor, reading, and prayer. And over all their lives, there fell a silence, as of death, for no one spoke. A grim fraternity, passing grim lives in that sweet spot that God had made so bright. Strange that nature's voices all around them, the soft singing of the waters, the whisperings of the river grass, the music of the rushing wind, should not have taught them a truer meaning of life than this. They listened there, through the long days in silence, waiting for a voice from heaven, and all day long and through the solemn night it spoke to them in myriad tones, and they heard it not. From Medmenham to Sweet Hambleton, Lock, the river is full of peaceful beauty. But, after it passes Greenland, the rather uninteresting-looking-river residence of my newsagent, a quiet, unassuming old gentleman, who may often be met with about in these regions during the summer months, sculling himself along in easy, vigorous style, or chatting genially to some old lock-keeper as he passes through, until while the other side of Henley is somewhat bare and dull. We got up tolerably early on the Monday morning at Marlowe, and went for a bathe before breakfast, and coming back, Montmorency made an awful ass of himself. The only subject on which Montmorency and I have any serious difference of opinion is cats. I like cats. Montmorency does not. When I meet a cat, I say, poor pussy, and stoop down and tickle the side of its head, and the cat sticks up its tail in a rigid cast-iron manner, arches its back, and wipes its nose up against my trousers, and all is gentleness and peace. When Montmorency meets a cat, the whole street knows about it, and there is enough bad language wasted in ten seconds to last an ordinary respectable man all his life with care. I do not blame the dog, contenting myself as a rule with merely clouting his head or throwing stones at him, because I take it that that is his nature. Fox terriers are born with about four times as much original sin in them as other dogs are, and it will take years and years of patient effort on the part of us Christians to bring about any appreciable reformation in the rowdiness of the fox terrier nature. I remember being in the lobby of the Haymarket stores one day, and all round about me were dogs, waiting for the return of their owners, who were shopping inside. There were a mastiff, and one or two collies, and a St. Bernard, a few retrievers in Newfoundland, a boarhound, a French poodle with plenty of hair round its head but mangy about the middle, a bulldog, a few louther arcade sort of animals about the size of rats, and a couple of Yorkshire tykes. There they sat, patient, good, and thoughtful. A solemn peacefulness seemed to reign in that lobby. An air of calmness and resignation, a gentle sadness, pervaded the room. Then a sweet young lady entered, leading a meek-looking little fox terrier, and left him chained up there between the bulldog and the poodle. He sat and looked about him for a minute. Then he cast up his eyes to the ceiling and seemed, judging from his expression, to be thinking of his mother. Then he yawned. Then he looked round at all the other dogs, all silent, grave, and dignified. He looked at the bulldog, sleeping dreamlessly on his right. He looked at the poodle, erect and haughty, on his left. Then, without a word of warning, without the shadow of a provocation, he bit that poodle's near foreleg, and a yelp of agony rang through the quiet shades of that lobby. The result of his first experiment seemed highly satisfactory to him, and he determined to go on and make things lively all round. He sprang over the poodle and vigorously attacked a collie, and the collie woke up and immediately commenced a fierce and noisy contest with the poodle. Then Foxy came back to his own place and caught the bulldog by the ear and tried to throw him away, and the bulldog, a curiously impartial animal, went for everything he could reach, including the hall porter, 
which gave that dear little terrier the opportunity to enjoy an uninterrupted fight of his own with an equally willing Yorkshire tyke. Anyone who knows canine nature need hardly be told that, by this time, all the other dogs in the place were fighting as if their hearths and uh, sorry, as if their hearths and homes depended on the fray. The big dogs fought each other indiscriminately, and the little dogs fought amongst themselves, and filled up their spare time by biting the legs of the big dogs. The whole lobby was a perfect pandemonium, and the din was terrific. A crowd assembled outside in the haymarket, and asked if it was a vestry meeting, or if not, who was being murdered and why. Men came with poles and ropes and tried to separate the dogs, and the police were sent for. And in the midst of the riot, that sweet young lady returned and snatched up that sweet little dog of hers. He had laid the tyke up for a month, and had, and had on the expression now of a newborn lamb, into her arms and kissed him, and asked him if he was killed and what those great nasty brutes of dogs had been doing to him, and he nestled up against her and gazed into her face with a look that seemed to say, "'Oh, I'm so glad you've come to take me away from this disgraceful scene.' She said that the people at the stores had no right to allow great savage things like those other dogs to be put with respectable people's dogs, and that she had a great mind to summon somebody. Such is the nature of fox terriers, and therefore I do not blame Montmorency for his tendency to row with cats, but wish she had not given way to it that morning.' We were, as I have said, returning from a dip, and halfway up the high street a cat darted out from one of the houses in front of us and began to trot across the road. Montmorency gave a cry of joy, the cry of a stern warrior who sees his enemy given over to his hands, the sort of cry Cromwell might have uttered when the Scots came down the hill and flew after his prey. His victim was a large black tom. I never saw a larger cat, nor a more disreputable-looking cat. It had lost half its tail, one of its ears, and a fairly appreciable proportion of its nose. It was a long, sinewy-looking animal. It had a calm, contented air about it. Montmorency went for that poor cat at the rate of twenty miles an hour, but the cat did not hurry up, did not seem to have grasped the idea that its life was in danger. It trotted quietly on until its would-be assassin was within a yard of it, and then it turned round and sat down in the middle of the road, and looked at Montmorency with a gentle, inquiring, inquiring expression that said, Yes, you want me? Montmorency does not lack pluck, but there was something about the look of that cat that might have chilled the heart of the boldest dog. He stopped abruptly and looked back at Tom. Neither spoke, but the conversation that one could imagine was clearly as follows. The cat. Can I do anything for you today? Montmorency. No, no, no thanks cat. Don't you mind speaking if you don't don't you mind speaking if you really want anything, you know? Montmorency backing down the high street. Oh no, not at all, certainly. Don't trouble. I I'm afraid I've made a mistake. I thought I knew you. Sorry I disturbed you. The cat. Not at all. Quite a pleasure. Sure you don't want anything now? Montmorency still backing. Not at all, thanks, not at all. Very kind of you. Good morning. The cat. Good morning. Then the cat rose and continued his trot and Montmorency, fitting what he calls his tail carefully into its groove, came back to us and took up an unimportant position in the rear. To this day, if you say the word cat to Montmorency, he will visibly shrink and look up piteously at you as if to say, please don't. We did our marketing after breakfast and revictualled the boat for three days. George said we ought to take vegetables, that it was unhealthy not to eat vegetables, he said they were easy enough to cook and that he would see to that, so we got ten pounds of potatoes, a bushel of peas, and a few cabbages. 
We got a beefsteak pie, a couple of gooseberry tarts, and a leg of mutton from the hotel, and fruit and cakes and bread and butter and jam and bacon and eggs and other things we foraged around the town for. Our departure from Marlowe I regard as one of our greatest successes. It was dignified and impressive without being ostentatious. We had insisted at all the shops we had been to that we had been to that the things should be sent with us then and there. None of your, yes, sir, I will send them off at once, the boy will be down there before you are, sir, and then fooling about on the landing stage and going back to the shop twice to have a row about them for us. We waited while the basket was packed and took the boy with us. We went to a good many shops, adopting this principle at each one, and the consequence was that by the time we had finished, we had as fine a collection of boys with baskets following us around as heart could desire, and our final march down the middle of the high street to the river must have been as imposing a spectacle as Marlowe had seen for many a long day. The order of the procession was as follows. Montmorency, carrying a stick. Two disreputable-looking curs, friends of Montmorency's. George, carrying coats and rugs and smoking a short pipe. Harris, trying to walk with easy grace, while carrying a bulged-out Gladstone bag in one hand and a bottle of lime juice in the other. Green grocer's boy and baker's boy with baskets. Boots from the hotel, carrying hamper. Confectioner's boy with basket. Grocer's boy with basket. Long-haired dog. Cheesemonger's boy with basket. Odd man carrying a bag. Bosom companion of odd man with his hands in his pockets, smoking a short clay. Fruiterer's boy with basket. Myself carrying three hats and a pair of boots and trying to look as if I didn't know it. Six small boys and four stray dogs. When we got down to the landing stage, the boatman said, Let me see, sir, was yours a steam launch or a houseboat? On our, on our informing him it was a double-sculling skiff, he seemed surprised. We had a good deal of trouble with steam launches that morning. It was just before the Henley week, and they were going up in large numbers, some by themselves, some towing houseboats. I do hate steam launches. I suppose every rowing man does. I never see a steam launch, but I feel I should like to lure it to a lonely part of the river and there, in the silence and the solitude, strangle it. There is a blatant bumptiousness about a steam launch that has the knack of rousing every evil instinct in my nature, and I yearn for the good old days when you could go about and tell people what you thought of them with a hatchet and a bow and arrows. The expression on the face of the man who, with his hands in his pockets, stands by the stern, smoking a cigar, is sufficient to excuse a breach of the peace by itself and the lordly whistle for you to get out of the way would, I am confident, ensure a verdict of justifiable homicide from any jury of rivermen. They used to have to whistle for us to get out of their way. If I may do so without appearing boastful, I think I can honestly say that our one small boat during that week caused more annoyance and delay and aggravation to the steam launches that we came across than all the other craft on the river put together. Steam launch coming, one of us would cry out on sighting the enemy in the distance, and in an instant everything was got ready to receive her. I would take the lines, and Harris and George would sit down beside me, all of us with our backs to the launch, and the boat would drift out quietly into midstream. On would come the launch, whistling, and on we would go, drifting. At about a hundred yards off, she would start whistling like mad, and the people would come and lean over the side and roar at us, but we never heard them. Harris would be telling us an anecdote about his mother, and George and I would not have missed a word of it for worlds. Then that launch would give one final shriek of a whistle that would nearly burst the boiler, and she would reverse her engines and blow off steam and swing round and get aground. Everyone on board of it would rush to the bow and yell at us, and the people on the bank would stand and shout at us, and all the other passing boats would stop and join in, 
till the whole river for miles up and down was in a state of frantic commotion. And then, and then Harris would break off in the most interesting part of his narrative and look up with mild surprise and say to George, Why, George, bless us, if here isn't a steam launch. And George would answer, Well, do you know I thought I heard something? Upon which we would get nervous and confused and not know how to get the boat out of the way, and the people in the launch would crowd round and instruct us, Pull your right, you, you idiot! Back with your left. No, not you. The other one. Leave the lines alone, can't you now? Both together. Not that way. Oh, you. Then they would lower a boat and come to our assistance, and after a quarter of an hour's effort, would get us clean out of their way so that they could go on, and we would thank them so much and ask them to give us a tow, but they never would. Another good way we discovered of irritating the aristocratic type of steam launch was to mistake them for a bean feast and ask them if they were Messrs. Cubitt's lot or the Bonmonsi's good Templars, and could they lend us a saucepan? Saucepan. Old ladies, not accustomed to the river, are always intensely nervous of steam launches. I remember going up once from Staines to Windsor, a stretch of water peculiar, peculiar, <laughs> peculiarly rich in these mechanical monstrosities, with a party containing three ladies of this description. It was very exciting. At the first glimpse of every steam launch that came in view, they insisted on landing and sitting down on the bank until it was out of sight again. They said they were very sorry, but that they owed it to their families not to be foolhardy. We found ourselves short of water at Hambledon Lock, so we took our jar and went up to the lock keeper's house to beg for some. George was our spokesperson. He put on a winning smile and said, "'Oh, please could you spare us a little water?' "'Certainly,' replied the old gentleman." Take as much as you want and leave the rest. Thank you so much, murmured George, looking about him. What, where do you keep it? It's always in the same place, my boy, was the solid reply, just behind you. I don't see it, said George, turning round. Why, bless us, where's your eyes, was the man's comment, as he twisted George round and pointed up and down the stream. There's enough of it to see, ain't there? Oh, exclaimed George, grasping the idea. But we can't drink the river, you know. No, but you can drink some of it, replied the old fellow. It's what I've drunk for the last fifteen years. George told him that his appearance, after the course, did not seem a sufficiently good advertisement for the brand, and that he would prefer it out of a pump. We got some from a cottage a little higher up. I dare say that was only river water, if we had known. But we did not know, so it was all right. What the eye does not see, the stomach does not get upset over. We tried river water once, later on in the season, but it was not a success. We were coming downstream, and had pulled up to have tea in a backwater near Windsor. Our jar was empty, and it was a case of going without our tea or taking water from the river. Harris was for chancing it. He said it must be all right if we boiled the water. He said that the various germs of poison present in the water would be killed by the boiling. So we filled our kettle with Tim's backwater and boiled it, and very careful we were to see that it did boil. We had made the tea, and were just settling down comfortably to drink it, when George, with his cup halfway to his lips, paused and exclaimed, "'What's that?' "'What what?' asked Harris and I. "'Why, that,' said George, looking westward. Harris and I followed his gaze, and saw, coming down towards us on the sluggish current, a dog. It was one of the quietest and peacefulest dogs I have ever seen. I never met a dog who seemed more contented, more easy in its mind.' It was floating dreamily on its back, it with its four legs stuck straight up into the air. It was what I should call a full-bodied dog with a well-developed chest. On he came, serene, dignified, and calm, until he was abreast of our boat. 
and there, among the rushes, he eased up and settled down cozily for the evening. George said he didn't want any tea and emptied his cup into the water. George, uh, Harris did not feel thirsty either and followed suit. I had drunk half mine, but I wished I had not. I asked George if he thought I was likely to have typhoid. He said, oh no, he thought I had a very good chance indeed of escaping it. Anyhow, I should know in about a fortnight whether I had it or not. We went up the backwater to Wargrave. It is a shortcut leading out of the right-hand bank about half a mile above Marsh Lock, and is well worth taking, being a pretty shady little piece of stream, besides saving nearly half a mile of distance. Of course, its entrance is studded with posts and chains and surrounded with notice boards, menacing all kinds of torture, imprisonment, and death to anyone who dares to set skull up its waters. I wonder some of those riparian boars don't claim the air of the river and threaten everyone with forty shillings fine who breathes it. But the post and chains a little skill will easily avoid. And as for the boards, you might, if you have five minutes to spare and there is nobody about, take one or two of them down and throw them into the river. Halfway up the backwater we got out and lunched. And it was during this lunch that George and I received a rather trying shock. Harris received a shock, too but I do not think Harris's shock could have been anything like so bad as the shock that George and I had over the business. You see, it was this. It was in this way. We were sitting in a meadow, about ten yards from the water's edge, and we had just settled down comfortably to feed. Harris had the beefsteak pie between his knees and was carving it, and George and I were waiting with our plates ready. "'Have you got a spoon there?' says Harris. "'I want a spoon to help the gravy with.' The hamper was close behind us, and George and I both turned round to reach one out. We were not five seconds getting it. When we looked round again, Harris and the pie were gone. It was a wide-open field. There was not a tree or a bit of hedge for hundreds of yards. He could not have tumbled into the river because we were on the water side of him, and he would have had to climb over us to do it. George and I gazed all about. Then we gazed at each other. "'Has he been snatched up to heaven?' I queried. "'They'd hardly have taken the pie, too,' said George." There seemed weight in this objection, and we discarded the heavenly theory. "'I suppose the truth of the matter is,' suggested George, descending to the commonplace and practicable, "'that there has been an earthquake.' And then he added, with a touch of sadness in his voice, "'I wish he hadn't been carving that pie.' With a sigh, we turned our eyes once more towards the spot where Harris and the pie had last been seen on earth. And there, as our blood froze in our veins and our hair stood up on end, we saw Harris's head— and nothing but his head, sticking bolt upright among the tall grass, the face very red, and bearing upon it an, in, an expression of great in, indignation. George was the first to recover. Speak, he cried, and tell us whether you are alive or dead, and where is the rest of you? Oh, don't be a stupid ass, said Harris's head. I believe you did it on purpose. Did what? exclaimed George and I. Why, put me to sit here, darn silly trick. Here, catch hold of the pie and out of the middle of the earth, as it seemed to us, rose the pie, very much mixed up and changed, and after it scrambled Harris, tumbled, grubby, and wet. He had been sitting, without knowing it, on the very verge of a small gully, the long grass hiding it from view, and in leaning a little back he had shot over, pie and all. He said he had never felt so surprised in all his life as when he first felt himself going, without being able to conjecture in the slightest what had happened. He thought at first that the end of the world had come. Harris believes to this day that George and I planned it all beforehand. Thus does unjust suspicion follow even the most blameless, for, as the poet says, who shall ex escape calumny? Who indeed?
Chapter 14. Wargrave, Waxworks, Sunning, Arstu, Montmorency is sarcastic, Fight between Montmorency and the Tea Kettle, George's Banjo Studies, Meet with Discouragement, Difficulties in the Way of the Musical Amateur, Learning to Play the Bagpipes, Harris Feels Sad After Supper, George and I Go for a Walk, Return Hungry and Wet, There is a Strangeness about Harris, Harris and the Swans, A Remarkable Story, Harris Has a Troubled Night. We caught a breeze after lunch, which took us gently up past Wargrave and Ship Lake. Mellowed in the drowsy sunlight of a summer's afternoon, Wargrave, nestling where the river bends, makes a sweet old picture as you pass it, and the one that lingers long upon the retina of memory. The George and Dragon at Wargrave boasts a sign, painted on the one side by Leslie R.A., and on the other by Hodgson of that ilk. Leslie has depicted the fight. Hodgson has imagined the scene after the fight. George, the work done, enjoying his pint of beer. Day, the author of Sanford and Merton, lived, and, more credit to the place still, was killed at Wargrave. In the church is a memorial to Mrs. Sarah Hill, who bequeathed one pound annually to be divided at Easter between two boys and two girls who had never been undutiful to their parents, who had never been known to swear or to tell untruths, to steal or to break windows, Fancy giving all that up for five shillings a year. It is not worth it. It is rumored in that town that once, many years ago, a boy appeared who really never had done these things, or at all events, which was all that was required or could be expected, had never been known to do them, and thus won the crown of glory. He was exhibited for three weeks afterwards in the town hall, under a glass case. What had become of the money since, no one knows. They say it is always handed over to the nearest waxworks show. Ship Lake is a pretty village, but it cannot be seen from the river, being upon the hill. Tennyson was married in Ship Lake Church. The river up to Sunning winds in and out through many islands and is very placid, hushed, and lonely. Few folk, except at twilight, a pair or two of rustic lovers, walk along its banks. Airy and Lord Fitznoodle have been left behind at Henley, and dismal, dirty Redding is not, is not yet reached. It is a part of the river in which to dream of bygone days, and vanished forms and faces, and things that might have been, but are not, confound them. We got out at Sunning, and went for a walk round the village. It is the most fairy-like little nook on the whole river. It is more like a stage village than one built of bricks and mortar. Every house is smothered in roses, and now, in early June, they were bursting forth in clouds of dainty splendor. If you stop at Sunning, put up at the bull behind the church. It is a veritable picture of an old country inn, with green square courtyard in front, where, on seats beneath the trees, the old men group of an evening to drink their ale and gossip over village politics, with low, quaint rooms and latticed windows, and awkward stairs and winding passages. We roamed about sweet sunning for an hour or so, and then, it being too late to push on past Reading, we decided to go back to one of the ship-like islands and put up there for the night. It was still early when we got settled, and George that said that, as we had plenty of time, it would be a splendid opportunity to try a good slap-up supper. He said he would show us what could be done up the river in, wh in the way of cooking, and suggested that, with the vegetables and the remains of the cold beef and general odds and ends, we should make an Irish stew. It seemed a fascinating idea. George gathered wood and made a fire, and Harris and I started to peel the potatoes. I should never have thought that peeling potatoes was such an undertaking. The job turned out to be the biggest thing of its kind that I had ever been in. 
We began cheerfully, one might almost say skittishly, but our lightheartedness was gone by the time the first potato was finished. The more we peeled, the more peel there seemed to be left on. By the time we had got all the peel off and all the eyes out, there was no potato left, at least none worth speaking of. George came and had a look at it. It was about the size of a peanut. He said, Oh, that won't do. You're wasting them. You must scrape them. So we scraped them, and that was harder work than peeling. They are such an extraordinary shape, potatoes, all bumps and warts and hollows. We worked steadily for five and twenty minutes and did four potatoes. Then we struck. We said we should require the rest of the evening for scraping ourselves. I never saw such a thing as potato scraping for making a fellow in a mess. It seemed difficult to believe that the potato scrapings in which Harris and I stood, half smothered, could have come off four potatoes. It shows you what can be done with economy and care. George said it was absurd to have only four potatoes in an Irish stew, so we washed half a dozen or so more and put them in without peeling. We also put in a cabbage and about half a peck of peas. George stirred it all up, and then he said there seemed to be a lot of room to spare, so we overhauled both the hampers and picked out all the odds and ends and the remnants and added them to the stew. There were half a pork pie and a bit of cold boiled bacon left, and we put them in. Then George found a half a tin of potted salmon, and he emptied that into the pot. He said that was the advantage of Irish stew. You got rid of such a lot of things. I fished out a couple of eggs that had got cracked, and we put those in. George said they would thicken the gravy. I forgot the other ingredients, but I know nothing was wasted, and I remember that, towards the end, Montmorency, who had evinced great interest in the proceedings throughout, strolled away with an earnest and thoughtful air, reappearing a few minutes afterwards with a dead water rat in his mouth, which he evidently wished to present as his contribution to the dinner, whether in a sarcastic spirit or with a genuine desire to assist, I cannot say. We had a discussion as to whether the rat should go in or not. Harris said that he thought it would be all right, mixed up with the other things, and that every little helped, but George stood up for precedent. He said he had never heard of water rats in Irish stew, and he would rather be on the safe side and not try experiments. Harris said, If you never try a new thing, how can you tell what it's like? It's men such as you that hamper the world's progress. Think of the man who first tried German sausage. It was a great success, that Irish stew. I don't think I ever enjoyed a meal more. There is something so fresh and piquant about it. One's palate gets so tired of the old hackneyed things. Here was a dish with a new flavor, with a taste like nothing else on earth. And it was nourishing, too. As George said, there was good stuff in it. The peas and potatoes might have been a bit softer, but we all had good teeth, so that did not matter much. And as for the gravy, it was a poem, a little too rich, perhaps, for a weak stomach, but nutritious. We finished up with tea and Terry Chart. <laughs> Cherry Tart. Montmorency had a fight with the kettle during tea time, and came off a poor second. Throughout the trip, he had manifested great curiosity concerning the kettle. He would sit and watch it as it boiled with a puzzled expression, and would try and rouse it every now and then by growling at it. When it began to sputter in steam, he regarded it as a challenge, and would want to fight it, only at that precise moment, someone would always dash up and bear off his prey before he could get at it. Today, he determined he would be beforehand. At the first sound the kettle made, he rose, growling, and advanced toward it in a threatening attitude. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> it was only a little kettle, but it was full of pluck, and it up and spit at him. Ah, would you, growled Montmorency, showing his teeth. I'll teach you to cheek a hard-working, respectable dog, ye miserable, long-nosed, dirty-looking scoundrel, ye. Come on! 
and he rushed at that poor little kettle and seized it by the spout. Then, across the evening stillness, <coughs> broke a blood-curdling yelp, and Montmorency left the boat and did a constitutional three times round the island at the rate of thirty-five miles an hour, stopping every now and then to bury his nose in a bit of cool mud. From that day, Montmorency regarded the kettle with a mixture of awe, suspicion, and hate. Whenever he saw it, he would growl and back at a rapid rate with his tail shut down, and the moment it was put upon the stove, he would promptly climb out of the boat and sit on the bank till the whole tea business was over. George got out his banjo after supper and wanted to play it, but Harris objected. He said he had got a headache and did not feel strong enough to stand it. George thought the music might do him good, said music often soothed the nerves and took away a headache, and he twanged two or three notes, just to show Harris what it was like. Harris said he would rather have the headache. George has never learned to play the banjo to this day. He has had too much all-round discouragement to meet. He tried on two or three evenings while we were up the river to get a little practice, but it was never a success. Harris's language used to be enough to unnerve any man, added to which Montmorency would sit and howl steadily right through the performance. It was not giving the man a fair chance. "'What's he want to howl like that for when I'm playing?' George would exclaim indignantly, while taking aim at him with a boot. "'What do you want to play like that for when he is howling?' Harris would retort, catching the boot. "'You let him alone. He can't help howling. He's got a musical ear, and your playing makes him howl.' So George determined to postpone study of the banjo until he reached home. But he did not get much opportunity even there. Mrs. P. used to come up and say she was very sorry, for herself she liked to hear him, but the lady upstairs was in a very delicate state, and the doctor was afraid it might injure the child. Then George tried it, taking it out with him late at night and practicing round the square. But the inhabitants complained to the police about it, and a watch was set for him one night, and he was captured. The evidence against him was very clear, and he was bound over to keep the peace for six months. He seemed to lose heart in the business after that. He did make one or two feeble efforts to take up the work again when the six months had elapsed, but there was always the same coldness, the same want of sympathy on the part of the world to fight against, and after a while he despaired to get altogether and advertised the instrument for sale at a great sacrifice, owner having no further use for same, and took to learning card tricks instead. It must be disheartening work learning a musical instrument. You would think that society, for its own sake, would do all it could to assist a man to acquire the art of playing a musical instrument. But it doesn't. I knew a young fellow once who was studying to play the bagpipes, and you would be surprised at the amount of opposition he had to contend with. Why, not even from the members of his own family did he receive what you call active encouragement. His father was dead against the business from the beginning and spoke quite unfeelingly on the subject. My friend used to get up early in the morning to practice, <sighs> but he had to give that plan up because of his sister. She was somewhat religiously inclined, and she said it seemed such an awful thing to begin the day like that. So he sat up at night instead and played after the family had gone to bed. But that did not do, as it got the house such a bad name. People, going home late, would stop outside to listen, and put it about all over the town the next morning that a fearful murder had been committed at Mr. Jefferson's the night before, and would describe how they had heard the victim's shrieks and the brutal oaths and curses of the murderer, followed by the prayer for mercy and the last dying gurgle of the corpse. So they let him practice in the daytime, in the back kitchen with all the doors shut, but his more successful passages could generally be heard in the sitting room. 
in spite of these precautions, and would affect his mother almost to tears. She said it put her in mind of her poor father. He had been swallowed by a shark, poor man, while bathing off the coast of New Guinea. Where the connection came in, she could not explain. Then they knocked up a little place for him at the bottom of the garden, about a quarter mile from the house, and made him take the machine down there when he wanted to work it. And sometimes a visitor would come to the house who knew nothing of the matter, and they would forget to tell him all about it and caution him. And he would go out for a stroll round the garden and suddenly get within earshot of those bagpipes without being prepared for it or knowing what it was. If he were a man of strong mind, it only gave him fits, but a person of mere average intellect it usually sent mad. There is, it must be confessed, something very sad about the early efforts of an amateur in bagpipes. I have felt that myself when listening to my young friend. They appear to be a trying instrument to perform upon. You have to get enough breath for the whole tune before you start. At least so I gathered from watching Jefferson. He would begin magnificently with a wild, full, come-to-the-battle sort of note that quite roused you. But he would get more and more piano as he went on, and the last verse generally collapsed in the middle with a splutter and a hiss. You want to be in good health to play the bagpipes. Young Jefferson only learned to play one tune on those bagpipes, but I never heard any complaints about the insufficiency of his repertoire, none whatever. This tune was, The Campbells Are Coming, Hooray, Hooray, so he said, though his father always held that it was The Blue Bells of Scotland. Nobody seemed quite sure what it was exactly, but they all agreed that it sounded Scottish. Strangers were allowed three guesses, and most of them guessed a different tune each time. Harris was disagreeable after supper. I think it must have been the stew that had upset him. He is not used to high living. So George and I left him in the boat and settled to go for a moot round Henley. He said I should have he should have a glass of whiskey and a pipe and fix things up for the night. We were to shout when we returned, and he would row over from the island and fetch us. Don't go to sleep, old man, we said as we started. Not much fear of that while this stew is on, he grunted as he pulled back to the island. Henley was getting ready for the regatta and was full of bustle. We met a goodish number of men we knew about the town, and in their pleasant company the time slipped by somewhat quickly, so that it was nearly eleven o'clock before we set off on our four-mile walk home, as we had learned to call our little craft by this time. It was a dismal night, coldish with a thin rain falling, and as we trudged through the dark, silent fields, talking low to each other and wondering if we were going right or not, we thought of the cozy boat, with the bright light streaming through the tight-drawn canvas, of Harris and Montmorency, and the whiskey, and wished that we were there. We conjured up the picture of ourselves inside, tired and a little hungry, of the gloomy river and the shapeless trees, and, like a giant glowworm underneath them, our dear old boat, so snug and warm and cheerful. We could see ourselves at supper there, pecking away at cold meat, and passing each other chunks of bread. We could hear the cheery clatter of our knives, the laughing voices filling all the space, and overflowing through the opening out into the night and we hurried on to realize the vision. We struck the towpath at length, and that made us happy, because prior to this we had not been sure whether we were walking towards the river or away from it, and when you are tired and want to go to bed, uncertainties like that worry you. We passed Ship Lake as the clock was striking the quarter to twelve, and then George said thoughtfully, You don't happen to remember which of the islands it was, do you? No, I replied, beginning to grow thoughtful, too. I don't. How many are there? Only four, answered George. It will be all right if he's awake. And if not, I queried, but we dismissed that train of thought. We shouted when when we came opposite the first island, 
but there was no response, so we went to the second and tried there and obtained the same result. Oh, I remember now, said George, it was the third one. And we ran on hopefully to the third one and hallooed. No answer. The case was becoming serious. It was now past midnight. The hotels at Shipley and Henley would be crammed, and we could not go round knocking up cottagers and householders in the middle of the night to know if they let apartments. George suggested walking back to Henley and assaulting a policeman, and so getting a night's lodging at the, in the station house. But then there was the thought, suppose he only hits us back and refuses to lock us up. We could not pass the whole night fighting policemen. Besides, we did not want to overdo the thing and get six months. We despairingly tried to what seemed in the darkness to be the fourth island, but met with no better success. The rain was coming down fast now and evidently meant to last. We were wet to the skin and cold and miserable. We began to wonder whether there were only four islands or more, or whether we were near the islands at all, or whether we were anywhere within a mile of where we ought to be, or in the wrong part of the river altogether. Everything looked so strange and different in the darkness." we began to understand the sufferings of the babes in the woods. Just when we had given up all hope, yes, I know that is always the time that things do happen in novels and tales, but I can't help it. I resolved when I began to write this book that I would be strictly truthful in all things, and so I will be, even if I have to employ hackneyed phrases for the purpose. It was just when we had given up all hope, and I must therefore say so. Just when we had given up all hope, then, I suddenly caught sight, a little way below us, of a strange, weird sort of glimmer flickering amongst the trees on the opposite bank. For an instant I thought of ghosts. It was a shadowy, mysterious light. The next moment it flashed across me that it was our boat, and I sent up such a yell across the water that made the night seem to shake in its bed. We waited breathless for a minute, and then, oh, divinest of music in the darkness, we heard the answering bark of Montmorency. We shouted back loud enough to wake the seven sleepers— I never could understand myself why it should take more noises to waken seven sleepers than one. And after what seemed an hour, but what was really, I suppose, about five minutes, we saw the lighted boat creeping slowly over the blackness and heard Harris's sleepy voice asking where we were. There was an unaccountable strangeness about Harris. It was something more than mere ordinary tiredness. He pulled the boat against a part of the bank from which it was quite impossible for us to get into it and immediately went to sleep. It took us an immense amount of screaming and roaring to wake him up again and put some sense into him, but we succeeded at last and got safely on board. Harris had a sad expression on him, so we noticed, when we got into the boat. He gave you the idea of a man who had been through trouble. We asked him if anything had happened, and he said, Swans. It seemed we had moored close to a swan's nest, and soon after George and I had gone, the female swan came back and kicked up a row about it. Harris had chivied her off, and she had gone away and fetched up her old man. Harris said he had had quite a fight with those two swans, but courage and skill had prevailed in the end, and he had defeated them. Half an hour afterwards, they had returned with eighteen other swans. It must have been a fearful battle, so far as we could understand Harris's account of it. The swans had tried to drag him and Montmorency out of the boat and drowned them, and he had defended himself like a hero for four hours and had killed the lot, and they had all paddled away to die. "'How many swans did you say there were?' asked George. Thirty-two, replied Harris sleepily. "'You said eighteen just now,' said George. "'No, I didn't,' grunted Harris. "'I said twelve. Think I can't count?' "'What were the real facts about these swans we never found out?' 
We questioned Harris on the subject in the morning, and he said, What swans? and seemed to think that George and I had been dreaming. Oh, how delightful it was to be safe in the boat after our trials and fears. We ate a hearty supper, George and I, and we should have had some toddy after it, if we could have found the whiskey, but we could not. We examined Harris as to what he had done with it, but he did not seem to know what we were t- what we meant by whiskey or what we were talking about at all. Montmorency looked as if he knew something, but said nothing. I slept well that night, and should have slept better if it had not been for Harris. I have a vague recollection of having been woken up at least a dozen times during the day by Harris wandering about the boat with a lantern. Sorry, yeah, during the night, looking for his clothes. He seemed to be worrying about his clothes all night. Twice he routed up George and myself to see if we were lying on his trousers. George got quite wild the second time. "'What the thunder do you want your trousers for in the middle of the night?' he asked indignantly. "'Why don't you lie down and go to sleep?' I found him in trouble the next time I awoke because he could not find his socks, and my last hazy remembrance is of being rolled over on my side, and of hearing Harris muttering something about its being an extraordinary thing where his umbrella could have got to.'"